morning, everybody. It's my great privilege to introduce to you our guest preacher this morning. David Jackman has been a pastor and has been a pastoral trainer for many years in London, England. He was the pastor of Above Bar Church in Southampton, and for uh, over the last 25 years, he uh, began with the partnership of Dick Lucas, the Cornhill Training Course, and the Proclamation Trust, which are which is an organization that trains young ministers in how to handle the Bible. And so David has since retired from Proclamation Trust as their president, but still engages in pastoral training in a variety of outlets through Proc Trust and over here through a sister uh, organization called the Simeon Trust, which this last week here at Old North, we had the privilege of hosting 41 pastors and ministry workers from as far east as Maine and as far west as Colorado uh, for two and a half days together. And... We studied the Gospel of Mark, and we were challenged in ongoing training with how we handle the Word of God, and David was one of our trainers. So it's a great privilege to have him here with us today to open the book of Philippians chapter 3, and so as David comes, I want to ask you to pray with me for our time together. Father, we thank you that you speak to us so clearly through your Word, and we proclaim to you today that we long to hear from you. We need to know you better. We need to understand our life better through the context that you give us. We desire to have greater hope and greater joy and a clarity of purpose. And we know that you give us these things and that you communicate them through your word. And so we pray now that you'd help us to hear that you would give us a clarity of thought and engagement, that you would speak through your servant today, David, and that we would have hearts that are open. We pray this for the sake of your glory and for our good. Amen. David, please come. Well, thank you so much uh, for your welcome. It's a real joy to be here and to share with you this Sunday morning. Thank you too for those members of the church family who've looked after us so well during this last week of the workshop uh, here at Old North. And uh, for those of you who prayed for it, it's been a great week, I think, of learning and progressing. And so we're very thankful to God for the privilege of sharing together in his word. Uh, this was the first of three workshops for me. We travel on tomorrow to Des Moines and we have a workshop there this coming week looking at the letter to the Ephesians. And then the third week is in Lincoln, Nebraska and we go back to Mark's Gospel, which was what we studied here. And uh, we'll be looking at that great Gospel uh, during that third week. So I'm on a three-week progress and uh, it's a joy to share today with you. Now, we're going to read together from the Word of God, from uh, Philippians chapter 3, and if you would like to find that, please take the uh, church Bible in the rack in front and turn with me to page 981, page 981, as we read from Philippians 3, beginning at verse 7 and reading down to verse 16. And Paul is uh, sharing with his Philippian readers the motivation of his life. He's in prison. This is the last of the letters that he writes to a church. And uh, he is reminding them of the gospel and their partnership in the gospel 
but particularly of the distinctives of Christian living. So we pick it up at verse 7 of chapter 3. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. I want to talk to you this morning about having a one-track mind. Uh, that's not usually regarded as a very commendable or advantageous thing, is it? If somebody has a one-track mind, we tend to think of them as being rather narrow, perhaps stuck in a rut, imprisoned in their box, plowing the same old furrow. One-track minds resist innovation. They have no interest in possibility thinking. And of course, all of those things can be true, and we see that all around us. But I want to suggest to you that there is an equal and opposite danger in our world of ever-increasing multiple choices, of never being able to focus on anything with sufficient concentration and persistence to be able to achieve something that is really significant. There's a children's poem that puts it very well, written by A.A. A. Milne, who was the creator of Winnie the Pooh. And in this uh, children's poem, he puts it like this. He says, there was an old sailor my grandfather knew who had so many things that he wanted to do that whenever he thought it was time to begin, he couldn't because of the state he was in. And many people find their lives are a bit like that, a directionless life will soon become a purposeless life. So it's intriguing and I think challenging to take four words, which is our theme from verse 13. That's our key text. We're going to look at the whole passage, but here are the words that unlock the text for us. Four words in verse 13. Brothers, I don't consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do. One thing I do. I guess if Paul was writing about some of us, he'd say, these many things you have an attempt at. But actually he's saying one thing really matters most of all. There's a one-track mind. And if this morning you feel a little unfulfilled in your Christian life, maybe you feel you're not making much uh, headway, there's not much um, joy or excitement or fulfillment in it, 
Or maybe you feel that your spiritual development has come to a bit of a halt and quite frankly, your Christianity is not something that gives you great joy and fulfillment. Well, there's a lot here in Paul's testimony about the value of a one-track mind and plenty for all of us to challenge our commitment. So I want to look at it with you under three simple headings, three characteristics that Paul puts before us about what really mattered to him to be a Christian. And because he's a good teacher, he not only tells us the what, but he tells us the why and the how. And that's always a mark of good teaching, isn't it? That it doesn't just lay out before us uh, the content, but it motivates us to want to receive it and it teaches us how to make it our own. Let me start then by suggesting to you, as our verse says, that there is a single ambition that characterizes this great hero of the Christian faith, our Gentile apostle, uh, apostle to the Gentiles, the apostle Paul. And it is a single ambition. So when he says in verse 13, one thing I do, what is this one thing? Well, it's expressed through the passage in a number of different ways, but clearly in verse 13, after the sentence, but one thing I do, he goes on forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. One thing I do, I press on. Now clearly the metaphors from the racing track, the distance of the race is set, the track's laid out before the athletes, and if the prize is going to be won, it will be won by an athlete with a one-track mind who really focuses on the goal, who isn't distracted, who times his or her race, who's not looking back over their shoulders, but pushing on towards the finishing line. And in the first century, that would be to win the laurel wreath, and in our 21st century, the gold medal. That's why Paul is running. That's why he's putting all his strength into this. That's why he's pressing forward, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal. And he says in verse 12, that's because I haven't already obtained it. I'm not already there. Now, we might think that Paul is one of the finest Christians we could ever know about, and that is certainly true. But he says, no, I'm not already perfect. My life is one of pressing on to make this great goal my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So here's his single ambition. It's not yet within my grasp. It's why Jesus entered me into the race. But I want to receive that prize, the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So he says it twice, doesn't he? Verse 12, I press on to make it my own. And again in verse 14, I press on toward the goal. It's a strong verb. It means keeping up the pressure. It means pursuing over a long distance. It's a word of... Um, keeping going and putting energy into things and he says that's what my Christian life is like. Everything is focused on keeping on track and achieving this goal. Well so far so good but what does that mean in practice? I mean we could all go out saying yes I'd like to make that my ambition too but what would it look like and why does Paul talk like that? Uh, and actually when you come to the earlier part of the passage that's where you find the answers. 
Just look with me, if you will, at verse 7 and down to verse 11, which is really the heart of what he's saying here. Here is the ambition of Paul's life spelt out in much more detail. And uh, if you look at those verbs that he uses, where I is the subject, he takes these uh, statements and he builds a picture of what his life looked like. So verse 7, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. Verse 8, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Um, verse, nine, uh, verse 8 again, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So I've counted everything as loss to gain Christ. Then verse 9, and I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. And verse 10, further, that I may know him. Put that together, I want to gain Christ, I want to be found in Christ, I want to know Christ. So this is the supreme gain which motivates him as a runner in the race and determines his commitment to press on towards the prize. His single ambition is to know Christ. Why is that so? Well, look again at verse 8. Because that is the surpassing worth it's a strange phrase. I guess we would say it's where you find the supreme treasure, the super wealth of his life. The most valuable thing in his experience is knowing Christ. The surpassing worth of knowing Christ, the Son of God, Jesus, my rescuer, my saviour, and my Lord, the King and ruler of my life. That's who Jesus is, his full title there, Christ Jesus my Lord. And he says, I want to know him in all those three aspects of his ministry and of his person. And that's what I'm aiming for every day in my Christian life. And I think that's what he means when he says at the beginning of verse 9, and I want to be found in him, united to Christ, in union with Christ. So Jesus becomes the supreme central reality at the heart of his experience as a Christian. And I think that is what he's encouraging every one of us to make our central reality now and forever. That we might be found in Christ, trusting him, knowing his power and grace in our lives, dwelling in him and he dwelling in us. And so as his love and power flow into our experience, as we confess him as our saviour and praise him for the forgiveness he's brought us, as we kneel humbly to him and submit to him as our Lord, so the life of God is planted in the souls of men and women like us. And he begins to work out his purposes in us and through us. Now this is a cause of enormous assurance for us. We sang that great song a little earlier in our meeting. Uh, Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. Let me remind you of the second stanza that we sang because it's so clear and it so much elaborates what Paul is saying. Do you remember it said, When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, and if you're a Christian, you will know that experience that you feel I'm just not good enough and God can't go on bothering with me and surely he's not going to give me another chance. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, what do I do? 
upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless saviour died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. That is what it means to be in Christ. To know that when God looks at you, he sees you in Jesus. And that all that Jesus has done, he has done for you. And you've made that yours by simple faith in him. That's what it means to gain Christ, to know him as my rescuer so that I may serve him as my Lord. See, it's not knowledge about Christ that makes you a Christian. And it's not simply knowledge about Christian doctrine, important though that is. But it's a deep personal faith knowledge and commitment to Christ as the Lord of my life. That relationship is the heart of Christian experience. That's what gives you a single ambition. Everything else is subordinate to that. I want to know him. But then secondly, notice with me that that involves a decisive rejection. A decisive rejection. Verse 7, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Now that takes us to this key change in Paul's thinking. Clearly there were things that he thought in the past were very valuable to him. They were gains. But if he was going to gain Christ, he realized that he had to write them off as loss. All that he had assumed was in the credit column, he now sees as loss. Indeed, he uses a really strong word for it in verse 8. He says, I count everything as loss. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, is the English translation here. Garbage, uh, trash, you could say. Actually, it's an even stronger word. In the original, it means dung. It means excrement. It means something that is worthless and something that is um, foul in your thinking. I just want to reject it, he says. Well, that's very strong language, Paul. What were these things? They must have been very bad things, mustn't they? No, he says, actually, many people would have thought they were very good things. Look with me at verse 4. He describes it as having confidence in the flesh. He says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, that is, confidence in what he'd achieved, what he'd done, what he could offer God, I have more. This was how he used to live. And so he says in verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. So that was one of the things that he now leaves behind him. It was his Jewish pedigree, his heritage. Then he was, there was his tribal status, the group that he belonged to. As to the law, a Pharisee. The Pharisees were famous for their strict adherence to the detail of the law. In fact, he claims in the next verse that under the law he was blameless. And then he says, I was also very zealous, but my zeal was directed, verse 6, to persecuting the church because he wanted to stamp out this heretical sect of Jesus of Nazareth because it offended his pride and his own respectability and his success and all the heritage that he treasured and he says I had to write all that off whatever gain I had 
I counted as rubbish. Now, they were not wrong things in themselves, so so why does he do that? Uh, When he wrote to the Galatian Christians, one of his earliest letters, he said, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my own people, and I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. In other words, Paul says, within that Jewish context in which I grew up, I was top of the class. He won all the prizes. He was the one to watch. But it was all motivated by a selfish ambition which wanted to bring God his righteousness, Paul's righteousness, in the hope that God would certainly accept him because look at what he'd done for God. And that, he says, is rubbish. That is trash, that sort of self-righteousness. And that little phrase in verse 7 is the turning point when he says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. Why? For the sake of Christ. What does he mean by that? Well, he means that all that Jewish heritage prevented him from having any sense of helplessness and inability before God, which would drive him to Christ to find Christ's salvation. His past record of self-righteousness actually kept him from Christ and the gospel of God's free forgiveness. And that's why he was so opposed to Jesus and the church of the Lord Jesus. Look at verse 9 for a moment. He says, I want to be found in Christ. This is the big change that's happened. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. So the law-keeping righteousness was his own because he achieved it and earned it, he thought, by his obedience to the rules and regulations of the law. But that could never be sufficient to win him acceptance with God because God's standard is perfection. And whatever he may have done outwardly, Paul's heart was as sinful as everybody else's heart. And what he realized on that road to Damascus when the risen Christ met him and he fell from his horse and was there with his face in the dust, blinded by the vision of Christ's glory, what he realized was that his whole life had been built on what he now calls garbage, self-righteousness, and that he had to let go of that worthless dross in order to gain Christ. You see, the point is you can't have both. You can't come to God with your own offering of righteousness and hope that he might receive you and that it'll all be all right in the end. You've got to sing, as one of the songs we sometimes sing puts it, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to his cross I cling. And the only true righteousness in God's eyes is the righteousness of Jesus. But if you're found in Jesus, if you've gained Christ, if you know Christ, then you can know that you are acceptable through Christ's righteousness put to your account. It's not by human achievement at all, but by faith in the righteousness of Jesus that we are acceptable, that we are found in him and acceptable to the Father. You see, righteousness isn't a work at all. It's the gift of God, which we can only receive with empty hands and thankful hearts. And for Paul, that changed everything. 
You know, on a sunny day, you don't need to turn the electric lights on. When the sun is shining, you see everything in the light of the sun. And Paul now, when he was met by the risen Lord Jesus, began to see everything in the light of Christ. He came to realize that the loss of loss is great gain. And so must we. The surpassing worth, the treasure chest of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And it comes by grace alone, through faith alone. So we need to give up our pennyworth of righteousness or our pennyworth of self-justification, which we think we can rely on. And let God liberate us into the righteousness of Christ. There's a story told of a very wealthy man who had a collection of valuable porcelain and pottery in China. And the treasure of his collection was a Ming vase, which was extremely valuable. And he kept it in his home, but <clears throat> one day he was horrified to find that his little boy had got his hand stuck in the Ming vase. And there seemed to be no way that they could get it out. They tried all sorts of ways. In the end, they sent for the fire service because they're good at getting people out of a problem. But even they couldn't get the hand out of the vase. And the man said, uh, the fireman said to the uh, owner of this um, very valuable artifact, well, so there's only one thing to do. We'll have to smash the vase. Well, he said, you can't do that. But then you can't have your son go around for the rest of his life with this vase on his hand. And so the fireman takes his axe ready to smash the vase and the little boy turns to his father and says, Daddy, shall I let go of the coin before he hits it? And lots of Christians are like that. We hold on to a pennyworth, a little coin of our own self-justification, our own righteousness. We think God owes us because we can present something to him. No, we can't. We can only present a sinful soul that has been forgiven by the grace of God through the work of Christ. And the end of verse 8 shows how impossible it is for us to present anything to God. So he says, I've suffered the loss of all things. I've got nothing to offer him, nothing in my hand I bring. Indeed, the things I used to rely on, I count as trash in order that I may gain Christ. One last thought. If there is a single ambition and then there is a decisive rejection of anything that I might be able to do to justify myself by God, before God, that's something we've got to keep remembering as Christians. It's not just when we first come to Christ. It's that all uh, that we do is not going to, as it were, make us more justified before God. We could not be more justified than he has made us in Christ. But that should lead to a controlling direction, a controlling direction. And from verse 10 onwards, everything is future-oriented. Paul sees the future in two phases. In verse 10, he sees it as life in this world, which may involve suffering with Christ because we are his disciples. And then he sees it in verse 11 as resurrection from the dead, the life of the world to come. And here is the motivation to keep pressing on. He says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, verse 10, so that sharing in his sufferings, I may become like him in his death. I want to be like Jesus. I want to say no to my own self-centered ways. I want to be able to follow in his footsteps, to pick up my cross as a disciple 
and to follow him. And he says, if I'm going to do that, then I've got to know Christ, and the Christ I've got to know, verse 10, is the powerful risen Christ. I may know the power of his resurrection. Uh, you see, it looks at first, at verse 10, as though the order's wrong, doesn't it? I mean, surely his death came before the resurrection. So why does he put the resurrection uh, first in the verse and then talk about the death? Well, surely it's because you will never go on following the Lord Jesus. We will never go on suffering for him unless we know the power of the risen Christ who's conquered all our enemies and who's brought us out of death, spiritual death, into eternal life. If we know that power of the risen Christ, he will enable us to follow in his footsteps, to pick up our cross in discipleship. And because we're found in him and united to him, we will have the guarantee of that further future fulfillment that we will attain to the resurrection from the dead. A controlling direction. What are we living for? What is it that really matters most to us? Well, verses 12 following take us back to where we started not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect I can't just sit back I can't think well I've made it now I've been a Christian for a few years so there's nothing more for me to learn no no I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own and why has he made me his own verse 14 because he's calling me upward to the eternal kingdom to the heavenly relationship with him and his father in glory. That's why Christ took hold of me, Paul says. And I want to take hold of that prize, the experience of being with him forever in his heavenly kingdom. He's called me upward, heavenwards. He's entered me into the race. So I'm leaving the past behind. It's sins and failures, yes, but also it's achievements and blessings. And all the things that I used to put confidence in that were the confidence of the flesh, what I could do, how I presented myself, all those things. And now I'm confident that one day that prize will be mine because Jesus has taken hold of me. That's what he's called me to do. And I want my life, says Paul, to be following that one thing, to be pressing forward to that great prize. So we close by reading verses 15 and 16. Let those of us who are mature think this way and if in anything you think otherwise God will reveal that also to you only let us hold true to what we've attained see what he's saying none of us has yet reached full maturity God's still working on us he's still changing our minds he's still recalibrating our values he's the one who laid hold of us and he's the one who will bring us home to glory but verse 16 don't lose ground don't drift back Put into practice the truth that you've accepted. Be a citizen of heaven while you're here on earth. Live in the light of eternity. Keep pressing on. Because that sort of one-track mind will bring you to his eternal glory. But you may have been thinking over these last few minutes, well, all right, but I'm not the Apostle Paul. I'm not in paid Christian ministry. I'm a business person. I'm a mom. I'm an engineer, I'm a teacher, I'm whatever you are. It doesn't apply to me. Read verse 15 again. Let those of us who are mature think this way. 
And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you. See, he's saying there's going to be a progression here. But if you are wanting to grow as a Christian, if you want to develop in your Christian maturity, this is the way to think. One thing I do. And if you think it's not for anybody other than Paul and his inner circle, just look back at the first verse of the letter, chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. All the saints. That's why he says all of us need to think this way. And if we need to develop that thinking, God will make it clear to us. Now, of course, our lives are very full. They may be overfull, very demanding. We all have our share of pressures and hassles and anxieties and problems. And we always will have in this fallen world with our sinful hearts. But having a one-track mind is the solution to that fragmentation that so often paralyzes us, demoralizes us. We all have different spheres in which we live, but the one-track mind gives us a bottom line which pulls all the diversity of our lives together under this common goal. I press on towards the goal. So wherever I am, whatever I'm doing, I'm a citizen of heaven with the most glorious future ahead of me. That's how the chapter ends, verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a saviour, the Lord Jesus, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. So what do we take away this morning? This is what defines me if I'm a Christian, and if you're not yet a Christian, this is what it means to be a Christian. I am a Christ person. I want to know Christ. I want to gain Christ. I want to live for Christ in all I do day by day. And all the good things that God has given us, and he's given us lots of good things, our homes and our families and our jobs and friendships, our gifts and talents, our Christian fellowship and service, they are all and only through Christ's power, in Christ's strength, for Christ's glory. Paul would say, have a one-track mind like me. I want to love Christ. I want to serve Christ. But most of all, I want to be more and more like Christ. And I commend that to you as a lifelong ambition to govern every day that God gives us in this world. It'll imply some decisive rejections, but also a controlling direction. We are citizens of a heavenly kingdom and as we do that, let's have a single ambition. One thing I do, I press on. Let's pray. Just a moment or two of quiet reflection. Maybe something the Lord has said through his word and you'd like to turn that into a personal prayer in a moment of silence. Father, please help us to be one thing I do Christians. We know we've got lots of things to do this week, many things on our agenda. But we pray that the bottom line that governs it all and pulls it all together may be our desire to know you, to prove your power in all the circumstances of life, to gain Christ, to know the power of the resurrection, enabling us to walk in your footsteps and to share your purposes. 
and help us, Lord, to see ever more clearly the prize of the upward call, that we may be faithful, that we may run the course, the race with our eyes fixed on Jesus, and that our lives may demonstrate the transforming power of the one thing that is knowing Christ, the surpassing worth, the greatest treasure of all. Help us to that end, we pray, for his name's sake. Amen.